One of the reasons why we are doing this, looking at Luke, is because we want to see Jesus. And uh, right now we see with our ears and with our hearts. And so as we hear God's word and we understand God's word, God does a supernatural, only God can do it, work in our hearts that enables us to see Jesus. And uh, that really means to enjoy Jesus and to delight in Jesus and to have a relationship with Jesus, not just as a figure on a page, but as a person who lives and exists right now and is present with us. And so far, we've been in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38, where Luke introduces Jesus. And we've seen that as Luke introduces Jesus, he is making it very clear that what God is doing through Jesus is epic. And that's almost too small a word, I think, but monumental, world-changing. And, you know, of course, that's what we're saying as a church as well, as, as Christians. And sometimes I think it's, it's good for us just to stop and feel the force of that, the claims that we make about Jesus, the claims that you make if you're a Christian. Because obviously we know uh, there have been a lot of people who have lived so far, and there have been a lot of important people who have done a lot of important things. But as Christians, we are convinced that if you look back at the history of the world, out of all the people who have ever lived, and out of all the things that have ever been done, this Jewish man who lived a little over 2,000 years ago, named Jesus, is the single most important person. And what he did is the most significant. His life changes everything. And we believe that, of course, because of what people like Luke tell us. Uh, there were eyewitnesses there who saw what happened, and they went around explaining uh, what they saw. And uh, then people like Luke did investigation into what those people reported. And uh, then they brought all those stories together to help us understand the significance. And we saw that he starts out chapter 1 by telling two stories at the beginning to prove how important Jesus is. It's almost like an argument for why he's even writing this gospel. And in the first story, Zechariah, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, verses 5 through 25, Luke sets what Jesus is doing in its Old Testament context. So Jesus is so important that you can't just open your Bible to Matthew or, or Luke to understand him. I love those little old Gideon Bibles that are like the New Testament and Psalms, but they're actually, they're, uh, they're great, but they're actually uh, insufficient for really understanding Jesus because we have a whole Bible. Uh, they're great, but we have a whole Bible. And to really understand Jesus, uh, we have to understand uh, the Old Testament because God has taken thousands of years of history to get us ready to understand how he's gonna solve the problems of the universe through this hero who he's gonna send. There is like all this preparation, in other words, for Jesus. And in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, in case you haven't been paying attention, I suppose, the last book of the Old Testament, God explains that before he steps in, there's a day in which God is gonna rip back the curtain, you might say, and step in before he does that, he explains in Malachi that he's going to send a prophet. And this prophet's going to be a prophet like Elijah. And then after he says that, he pretty much goes silent, actually, for about 400 years. There's no more special revelation. There's no more prophets. Just waiting. And so there's a lot of anticipation, a lot of buildup. And in the first story in Luke, God shows up and he starts speaking again. And when he does, he's like, okay, that time that I was talking about is now. Here he comes, the prophet. His name is John. And so that's the first way that Luke makes it clear what God is doing through Jesus is epic. It is the fulfillment 
of thousands of years of Old Testament history, verses 5 through 25. It is the big one that the Old Testament talks about. And then the second way is verses 26 through 38, the second story, the story of the angel's announcement to Mary. And this is important because of the Old Testament context, because if you're familiar with the Old Testament and what God says about the Messiah and the hero he's sending, you already know a lot about him before you even open up Matthew or, or Luke. You know, for example, that he's going to be a descendant of David. And he's going to be someone who fulfills the Davidic covenant. And the angel agrees with all that. Uh, when he shows up, he says, Jesus is going to be great. Davidic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. He's going to be the son of the Most High. And he's going to be given the throne of his father, David. And of course, we know how the story goes. So we hear that and we put all kinds of New Testament meaning into it. But that by itself is actually just kind of standard Old Testament information, not really something new except for identifying Jesus. And this next part is Old Testament too, sort of, but it's not something they understood quite as well. Because after saying all that, the angel goes on and says, Jesus is going to be more than just another descendant of David. I think there is a lot of evidence in the Old Testament that we need a divine Messiah, but they didn't understand that quite as clearly. And so the angel here tells Mary that her son is going to be a descendant of David, but even bigger. And that's part of what he's trying to help us understand when he talks about the virgin birth. It's part of what makes the virgin birth important. Because you ever think, why wasn't Jesus born to someone like Zechariah or Elizabeth, right? You know, an old couple miraculously having a baby would be pretty cool, pretty amazing. And that would make him someone like who? That would make him someone like Isaac, right? Which would be big. But he's not. He's bigger. And that's what the virgin birth says. It says you have to look again at Jesus. Because he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but he's, he's actually even more than you might be able to imagine. He is born of a woman, so he's human, and that means he's going to be able to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Yes, but he's also more. He doesn't have a human father. The angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. And uh, that's not gross. That's a very specific way of putting it that emphasizes this is happening at God's initiative. And yet it doesn't let you get the idea that you might get if you were like reading a pagan myth about Zeus or something. Luke is very careful in his language. There's none of that. This is just a miraculous conception. It's a supernatural miracle. The wording limits you to that. And yet we know, of course, that's big because it means there's going to be something different about Jesus than all the other Davidic kings. He's not simply going to be called the son of the Most High because of his role, but ultimately because of his nature. And that is hopeful for us because if there's one thing the Old Testament shows us, it's that no mere human is going to be able to fulfill the Davidic covenant. We have, like, lots of proof of that. Because all the descendants of David either sin or die, or we should say they sin and die. And so with Jesus, we have hope because God himself is taking the initiative to provide the salvation the Old Testament promises and we're longing for. It is big what God's doing through Jesus. And, you know, I've been hoping as we've been looking at these passages that you've been just getting a sense of how big all this really is. That's been one of my prayers, one of my goals, because sometimes I think we shrink Christianity into something very small. It's a big uh, temptation. We're living in a me-centered world. And so it's, it's really tempting for us to make the Bible all about us. It's kind of funny as humans, we went to a basketball game uh, recently, and I was just amazed. It was, it was funny to watch, you know, they have that big screen up there in the middle, and to watch people's faces when they get on the big screen. It's like they've never seen themselves before. <laughs> there I am, waving and dancing and doing all kinds of super embarrassing things. And that's because we love ourselves. We want to be the hero. I imagine most of those people that went up on the screen probably didn't even talk about the game when they got home. They talked about seeing themselves up there. And we do that even with the Bible. We're constantly trying to photobomb Jesus to get ourselves into the picture 
we want to be the hero. And as we study Luke, I've been wanting to say, trying to say, let's fight that tendency and just stop and look at Jesus. And yet while Luke is heavy on the vertical, and vertical means all this stuff that I'm talking about, God and what God's doing in this world through Jesus. Luke is like, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, almost every story. And yet while Luke is heavy on the vertical, he also does want us to think about the horizontal. And that means how we live in this world. Luke is all about Jesus and what God is doing through Jesus and about what that means for our lives and what it means for how we follow Jesus. Because obviously we have to think about that. The gospel has implications. It's just about order, the way we do that. We don't start with us. We start with God and what God's doing through Jesus, and we have to think, okay, if that's what God's doing through Jesus, what difference does that make? If this is who Jesus is, and this is what God's accomplishing through Jesus, what difference does that make in my life? And, and that's what I want us to pause and talk about today, because we've had a couple messages on the vertical. God is doing great things through Jesus. Now the horizontal. What are the implications for the way that we think and the way that we live our lives? And the good news is that Luke is not super complicated. From this first chapter, I think he makes it pretty obvious. And it's pretty much the same application, the whole rest of the gospel. But the, the bad news, and it's not really bad news, but I couldn't think of a contrasting phrase. The, it's absolutely revolutionary what Luke says. When you understand who Jesus is, and what God's doing through Jesus, the implications for your life and for our life as a church as well are revolutionary. And honestly, I think often missed, actually, because it's not the way our culture thinks. It's not the way that any culture naturally thinks, really. It's revolutionary. And to show you how revolutionary, I want us to look at Mary in verses 39 through 45, because it's pretty clear that Luke wants us to. If you look at the way that Luke's writing these first couple chapters, he's definitely highlighting Mary as someone pretty significant in a number of different ways. Like first, there's just how much he talks about her. Luke talks about Mary the most, something like 16 times in this gospel, more than all the other gospel writers. Even Matthew, who also tells the birth story, he tells it from Joseph's perspective. But with Luke, it's Mary who's prominent, and that's intentional, obviously, and she really is prominent. Like, for example, when Luke talks about the shepherds coming to visit the baby, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, they found Mary and Joseph. And so you see he mentions Mary first. And then when Simeon blesses Jesus in Luke 2, 34, he addresses Mary and Luke chapter 2, verse 48, when Joseph and Mary go back and they're surprised to find Jesus still in the temple, it's Mary who speaks to him. It's like Luke is pushing Mary to the front. He wants us to notice Mary. You see that by how often he talks about her, by how prominently he places her, and by the way he talks about her as well. I mean, he introduces Mary by having an angel describe her, not once but twice, as being favored by God. And that's not saying, of course, that she's perfect or anything like that. But at the same time, it's a pretty big thing if an angel shows up and points out that you have been shown grace by God. And a, a little while later, her older relative, Elizabeth, agrees. And twice, she calls her blessed. And the, the word that she uses for blessed, at least in verse 42, is a big word. It's not just like the experience of feeling happy. Oh, you're blessed. You feel joy. It's actually an act. You have been blessed. And with Mary, he's saying, God has acted in your life to change things, and not just for you, but for the whole world. And you know, if, that's not, if all that's not enough to get us looking at Mary, I think that's part of the whole point of this story in Luke 1, 39 through 45, this passage that we're looking at today. It's like, go back and make sure you got what I was showing you about Mary. Or to say it another way, let me explain what the angel meant when he said she was favored by God. Because if you look at the story, it kind of carries with it a little bit of shock that makes you ask a question if you're following along. Because what do you have here in verses 39 through 45, basically? What you have is an unmarried a teenage girl going to meet her elderly relative. 
we might say auntie, and not just any auntie, but her auntie who's married to a priest, someone who Luke tells us is actually righteous and blameless. And nine times out of 10, you hear a story like that, and how are you expecting it to go down? You're not expecting it to go down well at all. Uh, I mean, we can even play out how it's gonna work in our heads. First of all, normally the young girl doesn't want to go to her aunt. Uh, and when she does, she's going to go because she's forced or she's going to go fearfully. And when the aunt finds out what happened, she's going to launch into her right away. And at the end of the story, the young girl is going to walk away ashamed, embarrassed. And yet that's not what happens at all here in Luke. The opposite. Mary is wanting to go to Elizabeth. She's not fearful, eager. Verse 39, in those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And that means she was in a hurry. She went in haste. She wanted to get there as quickly as she could. And when she finally, and it's like a hundred mile journey as well up into the hills of Judah. And when she finally gets there and greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth shouts out with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, verse 42, which is not what you'd expect an older woman to say to the younger one ever, ever in that culture. And you know, it's a, it's a little funny because Elizabeth would have been the one who was showing at that point. She was like six months along and Mary was at the beginning. And again, you remember this was huge for Elizabeth being pregnant. She's been waiting forever for this. And so you would expect her to say something like, can you believe what's happened to me? And you'd expect her to focus on the amazing grace that God's shown her. And yet as we read this story, her entire focus is on Mary and what's happening to Mary instead. She's saying, blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit as she's saying it. So she's prophesying. This is God speaking through Elizabeth, pronouncing Mary blessed. And it gets even more intense because listen to what she says next, Elizabeth, verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? which I'm saying is a little surprising. That's, that's the point. So surprising and so different that even if you missed how often Luke talks about Mary, and even if you missed how prominently he places her, and even if you weren't paying attention to all the times that he says she's blessed, the shock of that story by itself should make you ask, what is it that is so significant about Mary? God is acting in this world through Jesus in a big way. And here in the Gospel of Luke, he brings up and points out and highlights in a really positive way, Mary as a recipient of God's grace and blessing. And what he points out here actually should revolutionize our whole lives in a couple different ways. First of all, if you look at the way Luke describes Mary, it is obvious that what is important to the world is not what's important to God. What's important to God is not what's important to the world. I mean, here, Luke is bringing Mary up and talking about her as someone who is highly blessed and favored. And yet, if you look at Mary from just sort of a worldly standpoint and ask Luke, what is it that makes her significant? Honestly, probably the most significant thing he points out about Mary is her insignificance. It's pretty striking if you think about it, because imagine in the first century, Luke is writing this gospel to promote Jesus. And think about the first person he's highlighting here. She's not anyone you would think of as important, uh, because she's a girl and a young girl. And back then, uh, being a, a, a lady in that culture was hard, for sure, because you didn't have a lot of power or respect. In fact, uh, they wouldn't even... Um, allow a woman's testimony to be valid in court. Uh, they had religious leaders who would pray even, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. And uh, they thanked God they weren't a woman for one reason, because being a woman was so hard. And if women in general weren't thought much of, a young unmarried girl would have been looked down on even more. And it's not like she's from an especially important family either. She didn't even have that. And she definitely doesn't come from an important place. 
She's from Nazareth, which was like a village of maybe 100 people. I'm saying you look at Mary, and Mary measures low on the social status scale. And Luke even seems to emphasize that. If you compare her to the other characters in the first couple chapters, every other character he brings up in the first couple chapters, Luke gives like a pedigree for. So take Zechariah. When he talks about Zechariah, he says, Zechariah is a priest, righteous and blameless. And then he talks about Elizabeth. Elizabeth, his wife, was righteous too. She was of the house of Aaron. And Joseph, who hardly plays any role in the way Luke tells Jesus' story, twice we're told, though, he's of David's household. And later we're going to meet Simeon, who's described as righteous and devout. And then Anna, who Luke points out is a prophetess, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. But for Mary, nothing, except that she's a virgin and betrothed to be married. And so it's like Luke is purposely highlighting her insignificance as one of the most significant things about her. And when she talks to God later, she even brings that up, right? Verses 46 and 47 of chapter 1, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will call me blessed. And, you know, I feel like we kind of have to say this at the beginning and like underline it. It is a pretty big deal that the first example Luke brings up of someone who's been chosen and shown grace by God, of someone who gets it and whose response even we're supposed to imitate, of someone who is pretty significant, is not someone anyone thinks of as important. And, you know, in that culture, him bringing up Mary like this is really kind of in your face, actually. And one way we know we're not making this up is we can kind of cheat and go to the end of the gospel. And who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? It's two women who are believing even when the apostles aren't actually. And so this is at the beginning, Jesus' birth, and at the end. And I was trying to think of an illustration to get the surprise of this, but probably the best one is just the contrast Luke gives in chapter 1. If you think about Zechariah. So imagine you're sitting in a room in first century Israel, and Luke says, you know what I want to do right now? I want to bring up an example of a disciple. I want to bring up an example of someone who is being used by God in a world-changing way. And you've got Zechariah there. He's got all his special clothes on. He's fresh out of the temple. And you've got this teenage girl there. Who are you thinking he's going to pick? It's not even a question. And yet he deliberately moves past Zechariah to bring up Mary. This is saying something pretty loudly. And it becomes a theme, actually, throughout his gospel, if you think about it. Verses 52 and 53. What does Mary say God is doing through Jesus? She talks past tense, but it's future. It's just so certain what God's doing through Jesus. She can talk past tense. And she says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. And later, when Jesus starts out his ministry, you know what he says in Luke 4.18? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the famous and the really important in the world's eyes to the poor and then in Luke 6 Jesus is preaching again Luke 6 20 the first beatitude in Luke blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God and you know we could go on and on because there are so many examples in Luke and Acts you might do this in your devotions the sinful woman over the religious leadership Lazarus over the rich man children over the rich young ruler, the tax collector over the Pharisee. And yet, what's the point? Because the point is not that if you're poor and insignificant and you're an obvious sinner, you matter more than if you're rich and important and religious. The point is that the way God is working in this world right now through Jesus is so different than how you would normally expect. Because from childhood, you've been having this story pounded into your head. You've got to achieve. You've got to do this to matter. It's like you've got to be your own salvation. 
And that's just how it so normally works that it's almost like it becomes ingrained in us. So it's like we have to be shocked out of it because the gospel is a totally different story, praise God. It's about God and it's about his mercy and it's about the salvation that he alone is providing through Jesus for those who don't deserve it. And you have to think about the implications of that because we almost automatically, without even thinking, get so focused on ourselves that even when we think about what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples, we're tempted to focus on ourselves. Before salvation, we're like, I need to be good. I need to be significant. I gotta get my life cleaned up before I can become a Christian or something. I've got, and after salvation, I've gotta do something big for God. I've gotta be important because we always wanna bring ourselves in there somehow. And when we bring ourselves in there, we end up missing the point. One of the very first things you need to learn about the way God is working through Jesus is that what matters to the world and what the world says is significant and what the world prioritizes doesn't really matter that much to God. What impresses the world doesn't impress God. Look at Mary. She's not the one you would pick and yet she's the one God chose. In fact, you know what's sad, just kind of as an illustration, because for us, maybe this seems obvious, but it is so hard to get, actually, because it's amazing. Even with all the work Luke does to make it clear here, it's not about Mary. I mean, here, God picks the most insignificant person in this chapter, and then he even has her say, thank you for choosing me because I'm an insignificant person. And yet, even with all that, you know, people still read this story and they make it all about Mary because that's how we roll as humans. We want it to be about something special in us. So let me take a moment again to emphasize that Mary is not the most important thing about Mary because Mary is important, obviously, from all these ways Luke highlights her. But what makes her important is not because she was perfect and it's not because she didn't have original sin and it's not because of an immaculate conception or anything like that. I mean, the most important thing about Mary is not Mary. It's Jesus. That's number two. She is not the hero. We're not the hero. Jesus is. And her significance comes from the role she's playing in what God's doing through Jesus. And this is something so basic and so fundamental for understanding your life in this world as a, as a Christian. It's like we have to get this drilled into our heads. Because before you can get the horizontal right, being a disciple, what's important, you absolutely have to get the vertical right. And it's hard for us to get the vertical right because in our culture, our hearts, they tell us what's supposed to be exciting is, is us. We're supposed to be the exciting ones. It's, it's got to be something about us. But what is exciting about the gospel is not first and foremost something about us, but first and foremost something about what God's doing through Jesus. And I know that sometimes bothers us because we so desperately want to be the hero. But in the end, it's such good news. You are not the hero. We're not the hero as a church. Jesus is. And you can see that illustrated, I think, if you just look at what Elizabeth says in verse 41 about Mary. I kind of feel like Elizabeth, whether she knows it or not, is expositing what the angel said about Mary. Mary's found favor with God. Mary is favored by God. What does he mean? In comes Elizabeth. And Luke writes, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And the baby's obviously John the Baptist. And Luke told us already that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb back in verse 15. And that's what, this is why he brought that up for this moment. So you can know this wasn't like just a normal kick from John. This was actually prophecy. And we know it had to be, obviously, because all Mary said so far is, hello. She's just greeted Elizabeth. She hasn't really said anything about her state. And yet, somehow, John already knows that she's pregnant, and he can't even see her, right, because he's a baby in a womb. And yet, he's leaping for joy, verse 44, and yet he can't tell us why because he's not even born yet. So Luke says his mother, Elizabeth, does. She was filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 42. And that's talking about prophecy here. And she exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, which is a really big thing to say. Because she's saying, out of all the women in the world, 
you are uniquely blessed. And so we might be tempted to start looking about at, at Mary. But what is it about Mary? Exactly. Because Luke won't let you look at Mary for very long. Because what comes next? He has to show you why. Why Mary's blessed. Keep reading. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it's the second blessed that explains the first. You're blessed among women. Why? Second blessed, which is what? The reason Mary is blessed above other women is because she was chosen by God to be the mother of, of Jesus. And so it's like one more time, Luke is saying, let me kind of spell this out for you. Back to the basics. It's Jesus. Don't get this wrong. It's about Jesus. Before Luke shows us anything we can learn about life from Mary, there's something he does before he shows us that. He, he says, remember, remember, it's not so much about Mary. It's about Jesus. And, and what is it that makes Jesus so significant? And now, I mean, it's like kind of just let me preach the whole gospel according to Luke chapter 1 again. Because Luke's given us these stories already. And he's like, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's God's plan to reverse the curse. He's told us about the, how this plan centers on this hero who's a descendant of David and about how he defeats God's enemies and he brings the world into submission and he makes everything like the Garden of Eden again. And he's told us about how the angel says Jesus is that hero. He is the Davidic king, which is huge. And yet he goes on and says more. He's going to rule the world forever and he's not going to fail and disobey God like everyone else did because he's going to be unique, holy. And if that seems like too much, the angel even gives us proof. He's going to be born of a virgin. In other words, in Luke chapter 1 so far, it's all about God doing something huge and new through Jesus. What is significant about Jesus? He's the one who changes everything. And yet, you know, in case you're still not tracking with how big Jesus is, it's like Luke brings in Elizabeth here in this story to top it all off. Because in verse 43, she says, and why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. And my Lord, you know, you have to kind of just stop and be stunned by that. If you've stopped being surprised, let me just put this in here. If you stop being surprised in your Bible reading, you need to start reading the Bible again. You're not reading it right. There's so many surprising things just in Luke 1. That Elizabeth would say, the mother of my Lord. That is, that's shocking because remember how important Elizabeth is. If you put Elizabeth in a room with a thousand other pregnant women, and if you knew what all their children were destined to do, you got the mother of Mandela there, the mother of uh, George Washington, all, you, put, you put her in the room with a thousand other pregnant women. Elizabeth would stand out every time because her son was going to be the last Old Testament prophet. But you know what? You put her in the room with Mary, and Elizabeth is on her knees, overwhelmed by the importance of the child Mary is bearing so overwhelmed in fact that she basically starts shouting for joy when she sees her Luke says she cries out with a loud voice and the reason she cries out is not because she's seeing Mary but because she recognizes that the baby inside Mary's womb is her Lord which means of course what my Lord it's a strange way for an aunt to be talking about her unborn nephew right especially in a culture where age is such a big deal. I don't know if you've been in a culture where age is a big deal. I've been in uh, certain cultures where a younger brother can't rebuke an older brother. You know, the older brother's like, who are you to talk to me? I am your older brother. I've seen them actually say, stop. You can't say anything. And so in a culture where age is a big deal for an aunt to be describing an, a baby this way doesn't make sense unless that unborn nephew was what? a king. And so at bare minimum, Elizabeth is rejoicing because she's recognizing Jesus is the promised Davidic king, confirming what the angel said. And yet, if you look at Luke 1 and 2, so this is kind of interesting, I think. If you look at all of Luke and Acts, the word Lord is used in different ways. So it could just be, in all of Luke and Acts, the word Lord could be used just to describe a superior. But if you zone in and just look at Luke 1 and 2, Luke does some work in this chapter to make sure you know what he means by Lord. One way, or what Elizabeth means by Lord, one way he does that is Elizabeth has already spoken and used the word Lord. 
And when she uses the word Lord back in 125, who's she talking about when she talks about the Lord? She's talking about Yahweh, God. She says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me. And you know what? You start working through Luke chapter 1 and 2 and looking at the other times the word Lord is used just in these chapters. It's used like 25 times in all. Every single time, it's God. Always God in chapters 1 and 2. And so here, Elizabeth is saying what? She's saying Jesus is God. Fully man, of course. Fully God. Which is epic, right? I mean, the significance of Jesus. You can see why I'm saying Jesus is world-changing and why I'm saying over and over, if you want to understand how life in this world is supposed to work as a Christian, you have to start by going back and making sure you understand what's happening with Jesus and who Jesus is because he's not just anyone else. He's not just another great leader who's coming into this world. He's not just another teacher. And this is not just more religion, like be good, work hard, make something of your life. What's happening with Jesus, who Jesus is, what God's doing through Jesus is way, way, way more than all that. This is God becoming man to provide a complete and total salvation. Not for people who deserve it and not for people who can earn it, but by himself, all by himself for those who desperately need it. The gospel is really, 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 really good news because of who Jesus is and the kind of salvation he's bringing. And if you want to know what kind of salvation we're talking about, you need to know because we make salvation too small sometimes. If you want to know, read what Mary says in verses 46 through 56. Look down there. Should I, should I quote at least a little? Verse 51, he's done mighty deeds with his arm. He scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And what is Mary talking about there? I wonder if your, your idea of salvation is too small. I think that's really a big problem. Because what is Mary talking about there? She's talking about a change in social structures, bringing down kings, exalting the humble. She's talking about economic change, filling the hungry with good things. And I think she's primarily probably looking at the nation of Israel here and thinking of Jesus doing everything he said he was going to do for Israel, where he's going to be king and he's going to establish them as this righteous and prosperous nation. And we'll see later, it's not just Israel, it's the whole world as well. Verse 67 and following talks about salvation, the salvation God's providing through Jesus. And Zechariah talks about the forgiveness of sins, the spiritual gift. And he talks about the fulfillment of all the promises God made about what he was going to do through the Messiah, through Israel, for the whole world. And I'm just saying, again, look, this is so big. Don't, don't make it small. We can't make it small. God comes into this world. This is Jesus. To do what? to provide salvation. What kind of salvation? We're talking a complete and total salvation. Well, we're going out there and announcing as a church, as Christians, we're announcing God himself came into this world to fix all the problems of the world through Jesus. And that has implications, right? For our lives and the way we think about what it means to be a Christian and about what's important about what matters. The vertical has to impact the horizontal. You start understanding Jesus. You start understanding how big the salvation God is providing through Jesus is. It, it starts changing the way you think about life. How? How? It's not complicated. In fact, if you read this gospel, Luke, you're going to see the same application point over and over and over. But it's worth repeating because while it's not complicated, it is definitely revolutionary. And he gives us the basics here in chapter one. He says, let me just give you uh, an example. Look at Mary. <laughs> she is favored. She is blessed. She is important. Why? One, you've got to get this. It's, it's not because she's so significant in and of herself. That's not how this salvation's working. 
Because God's not interested in the same things the world is interested in. It's not about you and your significance. God doesn't need you and your significance. That's not what this salvation's about. It's about Jesus. What matters is Jesus. Because with Jesus, God is doing something completely mind-blowing. Something built on the prophets, but new, different. Something that's never happened before. God the Father is sending his son to become man to completely fix the problems of the universe. And you know what that means? One thing it means is that you're not the hero. We're not the hero. Jesus is. And so what matters is not you and what you do for Jesus, but Jesus and what Jesus does for you. And you know, that's so important. You understand that. It's so important you understand that because once you understand that, you're ready to understand the single most important thing Luke has to teach you about being a follower of Jesus here in his gospel. And here it is. You are not the Savior. Jesus is. He is the one providing the salvation the Bible talks about. And what you need to do is believe it. That is first. That is foremost. That's fundamental. Mary is able to enjoy what God's doing because she believes God is keeping his promises. It's kind of cool how Luke writes this here, if you look again at the story, because there are two blessed in verse 42, right? And then there is another blessed in verse 45, but they're different words for blessed. So they're different Greek words for blessed. So blessed in verse 42 is kind of something that's only Mary, at least here. It's a word for blessed that's focused on how God's acted in her life at that moment to change everything for her and then for the whole world through her. It's, it's why Mary is significant. But the word blessed in verse 45 is Mary's experience. So it's more like the word happy. So Mary, Elizabeth says, God has acted in your life and he's made you a unique part. You have a unique role to play in this salvation plan and, and that you're the mother of the, of the savior. That's verse 42. And you get to enjoy that, and you are personally benefiting from that. Why? Verse 45. And this is where Luke is trying to point out Mary as our example. What does Mary do here that produces this kind of blessing for her? She doesn't do anything with the first one. That was all God. She was a virgin. That was totally God's initiative. But what does she do that results in the verse 45 blessing, the joy that comes into her life as a result of what God's done? She believes she believes God is going to do what he said he would. Verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And you've got to think that Elizabeth at that moment is at least side glancing at her husband, Zechariah, right? This one is blessed. She's happy. She's, she's experiencing blessing right now because she believed God, not you, Zechariah. You're over there sitting in the corner, not able to talk because you wouldn't believe. I mean, in both cases, God did what he said he was going to do, right? Elizabeth is pregnant. Mary got pregnant. But Zechariah wasn't able to participate at that moment in the same way, in the joy or blessing of it, because he didn't believe it. And Mary did. And I think that's such an awesome warning and challenge for us, because how many of us you, you look at our lives and we spend so much of our life worried about stuff that's not important to God. We've got to do this. We've got to become this. Our whole life, basically, we make these massive choices, life-changing choices on stuff that is so insignificant to God. And God's like, you know what? None of that is impressive to me. And sometimes we're like that because we feel like so much is on us. We need to be the hero. We need to whatever. We need to achieve our identity. We need to fix things. But ultimately, the gospel tells us God is sending Jesus to be the hero. He is the one who matters. He is the one who's accomplishing complete and total salvation. And so what should be the priority for us as individuals, as a church? It should be to believe that Jesus is who God says he is. And that God's going to do what he said he's going to do through Jesus. What does God want from you? What does God want from us? He wants you to believe him. He wants us to believe him. Do you believe him?
Do we believe him? We get that right, everything else is going to fall in place. We don't get that right, it doesn't matter what we do out there. It is impossible to please God without believing God. And we can't be just like, hey, look at me, I'm nice, I'm religious, I come to church, I've come to church for so many years, I'm in care group. Because Zechariah, you couldn't get more religious than Zechariah. And yet Zechariah, deep down, had a problem believing. And good news, God worked on that in Zechariah's life, but he's a warning. And, you know, let me take a moment and kind of apply this with first this warning, because God doesn't want you just to be a good Christian going through the motions on the outside. He wants you to believe that he's going to keep all the promises he's made through Jesus. And it's not always easy to. There's a lot of stuff that makes it hard to believe. And this is where we start coming up with excuses why we won't believe. And it's kind of funny, but in some ways, doing is easier than believing. Just putting our heads down and focusing on being a nice guy and keeping the appearances, looking good on the outside. But no, God wants you to trust him. And you know where that starts? If we just think about this from a human perspective, where it starts? It starts with humility. Zechariah is a warning. God wants you to believe. Mary's a lesson. It doesn't matter how important you are or whatever. This is where you're going to experience blessing and be enjoying what God's doing through believing. And how can you work on growing and believing, I guess you could say? It starts with humility, if you think about Mary. Because it's all these years later, and I don't think we appreciate how difficult it must have been for Mary to, uh, to uh, hear what the angel said to her. Because you know what possible consequences there would have been for Mary uh, to be an unmarried woman having a baby like this? Uh, it's possibly death, actually. And uh, definitely, usually divorce. She was betrothed, but you remember how betrothal worked in those days the person she was engaged to would leave her, and that would put her in a shameful position and make her vulnerable the rest of her life. Um, because you just didn't have opportunities as a woman back then, outside of marriage, really. And yet we know she believes. She accepts what God's doing as good and best. And we're going to see in verse 46, she's actually rejoicing. She says, my soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So she's confident God's going to keep his promises. And you wonder how. How is she confident? Because that's not how a lot of people would respond. And I think Luke gives us a hint in the way Mary speaks. And this is one of the core differences between her and a lot of other people who, who don't believe. Because you know what she says? In verse 38, what does she say in verse 38? This just gets you such insight into Mary. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And what's that word servant? It is bond slave, basically. That's Mary saying, God, you're God, and I'm not. I exist for you. You don't exist for me. So I want what you want. I want you to fulfill your word. In other words, let your will be done. Let me tell you one big reason many of us struggle believing God. It's because we want to be God. So you want to grow in faith. Stop. Stop. You are not God. Repent of that. And go back to God's word. If you look at Mary's prayer in verses 46 through 56, she's a young teenage girl. And yet you know what most of her prayers she's doing? Surprise, surprise, since we've said this like a million times already. She's quoting the Old Testament. Most of this is like Psalm 113. And it's very similar to Hannah's prayer. And so she's responding in faith because her mind is filled with God's word. And actually, if you go back to verses 1 through 4 of Luke, chapter 1, what's Luke say is the reason he's writing this whole gospel? It's so that we might have certainty. In other words, here, Theophilus is a Christian, and yet he's struggling. And so Luke does what? He writes a whole gospel to help him believe. And if we're going to grow in our faith, we need to dive into God's word. That's a big part of what it's here for. 
And yet, as you're like, I have tried to dive into God's word. Well, let me give you a warning slash encouragement. One of the things that keeps us from benefiting as we dive into God's word is if we think we have to be the hero. God, in his word, is accomplishing, is revealing how he's accomplishing salvation. God is the hero. Jesus is the hero. And so we need to go back to God's word, looking for God first and for what he's doing through Jesus, which is so hard for us because our whole culture and our, our hearts are, are constantly yelling out to us that we're supposed to be the hero. And that's why the Bible so often is so kind of boring to us because we keep looking for ourselves in Leviticus and we can't find ourselves there. But this is not just about you. This is about God and how he's accomplishing salvation. And so if you want to grow in your faith, humble yourself and go back to God's word, looking for what he's doing through Jesus, humbly crying out to God that he would help you believe because this is not small. Listen, this is not small, this application. This is of first importance. It is what is most important about you as a Christian. It's what makes a Christian a Christian, a church a church. It's not how nice we are. It's not how, how much activity we do. It's what we believe. It's that we believe what God has done and will do what he's promised in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.38, listen to it. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, what does God say? My soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 11.6, feel this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And of course, that's why Luke brings Mary up as someone who is significant. She's being used in this world-changing way by God. And it's not because she in and of herself was important. It's not really even because of something she did. What makes Mary important is not Mary, but Jesus. And yet, you know what? You strip away all the wrong ways people talk about Mary. Mary still really is an example. But she's not an example because of the way she's unlike us, but instead because of the way she is like us and yet chooses to believe God. Do you believe God? Do you trust him? Do you trust that God is going to keep all of his promises through Jesus? It's important you ask yourself that, because at the end of the day, that's what matters. Let's pray. Your word, Lord, we love it. it is, it's life. It's you speaking to us. And you've spoken very clearly through Mary today that what you want for us to do is to believe you. And so we come to you like little children. You're not a, a God up in heaven who's, who is um, hard and unkind. We know if we come to you today as a church asking, please help us believe. We believe, help our unbelief, that you hear us. But Lord, if... if, if if you're going to answer that prayer, we need to humble ourselves and recognize that we're not God. You are. And then we need to dive into your word. Help us to pray and work, to trust that you're the only one who can give faith, but to work at strengthening our faith by on our knees, studying your word, looking for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.